We are looking this afternoon at Article 21 of the Belgic Confession, found on page 63 in our Three Forms of Unity, and entitled, The Satisfaction of Christ, Our Only High Priest for Us. We believe that Jesus Christ is ordained with an oath to be an everlasting high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that he has presented himself in our behalf before the Father to appease his wrath by his full satisfaction, by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood to purge away our sins, as the prophets had foretold. For it is written, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and was numbered with the transgressors. And condemned by Pontius Pilate as a malefactor, though he had first declared him innocent. Therefore he restored that which he took not away, and suffered the just for the unjust, as well in his body as in his soul feeling the terrible punishment which our sins had merited, insomuch that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And has suffered all this for the remission of our sins. Wherefore we justly say with the Apostle Paul that we know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord in whose wounds we find all manner of consolation. Neither is it necessary to seek or invent any other means of being reconciled to God than this only sacrifice once offered, by which he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This is also the reason why he was called by the angel of God, Jesus, that is to say, Savior, because he would save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have here the Confession's second article on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in making satisfaction to the justice of God for our sins. We noticed in Article 20 last week that uh, the emphasis there is on the revelation of the justice and mercy of God in this satisfaction Christ uh, not only brings to us a merciful salvation, but also a just or righteous salvation, a salvation that is founded, therefore, upon the unchanging righteousness of our God. But here in Article 21, the emphasis of the confession in the um, discussion of the satisfaction of Christ is on the high priestly work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to that work that we want to turn our attention. We want to take a little bit of time at the beginning to talk about the work of the priests in the Old Testament, what they did, and so on. And then I want to look at the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us. And finally, I want to take a look at that second paragraph of the article in which the uh, Belgic Confession describes the response of a believing heart to this satisfaction of our Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. 
The people of God in the Old Testament, we may say, were divided into four groups according to the level of their access to the presence of God. At the very top, with the highest level of access to God, was the high priest himself. And the high priest had something that no other priest even in the Old Testament had, and that was access to the most holy place. The high priest could go once per year on the Day of Atonement into the most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that stood there. He could go, therefore, into the very throne room of God himself. No one else was ever allowed to do that. The priests, however, who were all um, next in line after the high priest, had access to the holy place. The uh, priests of the Old Testament offered the bloody offerings on the altar of burnt offering, which stood just outside the holy place. And they also brought the offerings of incense into the holy place and offered those, that incense on the altar of incense as a sign of the prayers of God's people rising up before God. Revelation 8 teaches us that. So they had access into the holy place, and they had access to the altar of burnt offering. And these priests also had other responsibilities. For for example, they were the ones who were responsible for the various uh, cleansing rites of the Old Testament law, the sprinklings and the washings with blood and water and hyssop that Uh, were performed on various occasions. They were the ones who pronounced uh, lepers unclean, and if uh, their circumstances changed, also pronounced them clean again. And therefore, they were the ones who, in this regard anyway, controlled access to the house of God. The lepers were not permitted into the house of God in the time of their uncleanness. They, uh, uh, after offering the offerings of incense, came out from those offerings to bless the people. We find Zacharias doing this, or supposed to be doing this, in Luke chapter 1. They were to pronounce the blessing of God on the people. The Lord bless you and keep you The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they had all these responsibilities which showed their greater access to uh, the presence of God than uh, others had. The third group of people um, were the Levites. The Levites were really, uh, first of all anyway, the assistance to the priests. They were allowed into the holy place, but only to service the uh, various things that were there, the lamp and the table of showbread and so on. They did not offer sacrifices. Later on, in the time of David, David assigned to these Levites also the work of music, making music in the temple. 
singing the psalms, in other words, in the presence of God. But the people themselves, then, all those who did not belong to the tribe of Levi, were excluded from the most holy place and from the holy place, from the making of offerings on the altar of burnt offering, and from all access to the house of God beyond the courtyard. They did not have this kind of access to the presence of God that the priests and the high priests had, or even the kind of access that the Levites had. And so the way we have to understand this Old Testament arrangement that God made for his people by means of the law is that the priests were the mediators between God and his people. They went to God on behalf of the people to offer their sacrifices for them and to offer their prayers for them on the altar of incense. Uh, And they came out from the presence of God then to bless them with God's blessing, that blessing which we've already mentioned from Numbers chapter 6. They acted as go-betweens between the people and God. There was, in a certain sense, then no direct contact between God and his people. The contact between God and his people was mediated by the priests. These priests stood between. Now, carrying that over then to the idea of the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, he stands in that same kind of position with relation to us. Our access to God is through him. He is our mediator. He approaches God on our behalf and he comes to us on behalf of God with his blessings. But he is the only mediator. And this is what makes him greater than, in part anyway, what makes him greater than the priests of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the people of God had all these different priests. And they uh, could go into the house of God only in a shadowy way through their representation by the priests, the human priests, who were their mediators. But in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have the one priest who brings us into the presence of God and who blesses us with the blessings of God. And he performs on our behalf all the work that the priests of the Old Testament did for the people of God then. He offers sacrifice for us, bloody sacrifice, to make atonement for our sins. He cleanses us from our sins. The uh, priests of the Old Testament cleansed in a ceremonial way with blood and water. Christ also cleanses us, but cleanses us from our sins in actual fact. He, as our high priest, entered the most holy place, For us. And he remains there in that most holy place for us. 
seated at the right hand of God himself. Hebrews 9 verse 24 mentions this. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So there was that most holy place in the Old Testament into which the high priest could go once a year. But Christ has entered the true holy place, the heavenly holy place, to appear there in the presence of God for us. He is the one who makes intercession for us as he sits at the right hand of God, offering to God the incense of our prayers. And he blesses us from his place at that right hand of God. So he, he performs all the work for us that those Old Testament human priests, merely human priests, did for the people of God in the Old Testament. But what we have to understand, of course, is that he does this all in a far better way than they did. And he does this all in a far better way than they did because he is a greater priest than any of those Old Testament priests. That's how the apostle begins in Hebrews chapter 7 when we read about uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest, Hebrews 7 tells us. And he was a priest made like the Son of God. And he was a priest made like the Son of God because he is a priest who is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So he is a, a, a greater priest, and a greater priest than the Levitical priests. In fact, in verses 4 and following, the point is that He's a greater priest than the Levitical priests exactly because the Levitical priests, as it were, paid tithes to him through Abraham and were blessed by him. And the passage says it's without contradiction that the lesser is blessed by the better. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham met him. And Christ is a priest after that order, that greater order of priests than the Levitical priesthood. The apostle makes quite a point of this in verses 11 and following. He says, if you think about it, there's something very strange about the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was not from the tribe of Levi. According to the law, he had no right to serve as priest. He had no right to offer sacrifices. He had no right to go to the most holy place. He had no right to pronounce blessings upon the people as the priests of the Old Testament did. As far as the law was concerned, he was like all the rest of Israel who were excluded from the holy place and excluded from the most holy place and had to stay in the courtyard. But he's not a priest according to the law. That's the point that the Hebrews 7 makes. He's a priest not according to the law, but he's a priest according to God's oath. For God said to him, quoting from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God swore an oath and will not repent of that oath. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Because he's made a priest by the oath of God and not by the law of God, he is, again, a greater priest than the Levitical priests of the Old Testament. He is, therefore, the surety of a better covenant. His is an everlasting priesthood. The priests of the Old Testament had to end their priesthood because of death. But his priesthood has no end. His sacrifice on behalf of his people is a better sacrifice. Because he, as priest, offered himself. And he did not offer himself for his own sins, but he offered himself exclusively for the sins of his people And he made a sacrifice which is acceptable to God. He made a sacrifice which actually pays the debt of our sins, which none of the sacrifices of the Old Testament could do. His cleansing of us is a real rather than a ceremonial cleansing. Those cleansings of the Old Testament had no power to do anything other than cleanse the body. But his cleansing cleanses our souls from the filthiness of our sins. As we said already, he entered the most holy place to remain there forever. But in entering into the most holy place to remain there forever, he's torn away the veil of the most holy place. As Hebrews 10 verse 19 teaches us. And now we can enter that most holy place ourselves. That's why we have no need of any human priest anymore. The way into the holiest of all is made manifest through the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through his opening the way for us into it. We are, a pri- we are priests along with him. And we are not just priests but also kings with him. He sits at the right hand of God not only as priest but also as king. And we come to God, through him, as both priests and kings, a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2 teaches us that. So we can have direct access to God himself, entering into his throne room, coming to the very throne of grace to call upon his name, having no need of human intercessors and human mediators. His intercession on our behalf, Christ's intercession on our behalf is from the right hand of God, not from that altar of incense that stood at the uh, way into the most holy place, but at the right hand of God itself. And it is an effective intercession that he makes for us. So effective, in fact, that the apostle in Hebrews chapter 4 Many of our quotes are from Hebrews 4 tonight, from Hebrews, because Hebrews has so much about the priesthood of Christ. But Hebrews chapter 4 teaches us what kind of access our high priest gives us and the effectiveness of his intercession for us. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a wonderful gift it is that our Lord Jesus Christ has given to us in opening to us the way to the very throne of God himself. And he blesses us from his place at the right hand of God with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So that's a kind of broad sketch of the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest. But what the confession is particularly emphasizing here in this article is, of course, the satisfaction of Christ for us so that we have obtained through him the remission of our sins. Now the confession has some um, quotations from the Old Testament scriptures in regard to this satisfaction. One of the passages it quotes is from, or refers to anyway, is from Psalm 69, verse 4. He restored that which he took not away. If you turn to that psalm, Psalm 69, that's a psalm of David that we have there. And David is there complaining in that psalm about the persecution he endured at the hands of his enemies. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. And in uh, verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would be destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. And he goes on in later verses to talk even more about them. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of drunkards. So David is complaining about the persecution of his enemies. But in verse 4, he, he talks about a specific thing that his enemies did to him. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. And apparently what David has in mind here is that his enemies made against him false accusations of theft. And in the Old Testament times, of course, when a man was uh, found guilty of committing theft, the law required, not that he go to jail for a time, but that he restore what he had stolen, plus something on top. And what David is apparently saying here is that he'd not stolen anything, but his enemies falsely accused him of stealing and made him restore what he had not taken away. They, made, they applied the penalty of the law to him in an unjust fashion then. That's what David is apparently saying here. But our confession takes that verse and applies it to our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is indeed a messianic psalm. We know from the Gospel according to John that when Jesus cleansed the temple, his disciples were reminded of Psalm 69, verse 9. 
because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And it is he who says, those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of drunkards, and so on. This is a prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is he who says, therefore, in verse 4, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. And it's clear from the way our confession interprets that verse that what they mean is that he had not taken away our righteousness before God. We had lost it ourselves. We were guilty of willful disobedience against his commandments and lost our righteousness through that disobedience. But it fell on him to restore what he had not taken away, to pay the penalty of the law in order that we may stand righteous before God. He had not robbed God of his glory. We were the ones who denied God his glory by trying to be as God and by lifting ourselves up in our pride against him. But it was he who had to do what was necessary so that God would again be glorified in his creatures. He had not deprived anyone of life. We deprived ourselves of life by our transgressions. But he had to die in order to restore life to those who deserved to die. He restored, then, what he did not take away. That's one thing that the confession emphasizes in this first paragraph. The second thing is that in his uh, satisfaction of the justice of God, the just suffered for the unjust. That seems unjust. But is, as we saw last week, the justice and mercy of God himself. That incomprehensible justice and mercy of God. Who has given Christ as the second Adam. To be our head. To stand in his judgment on our behalf. To take the sentence of our guilt upon himself to suffer the punishment of the curse of the law for us, so that we, who are unjust, might be judged righteous by a righteous God. The just suffered for the unjust. This is a a point that Isaiah 53 emphasizes. In fact, this is probably the the biggest idea that you find in Isaiah 53. You find it first in uh, verses 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And again, at the end of verse 8, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And in verse 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And in verse 12, he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The just suffered for the unjust. The righteous one suffered for those who have no righteousness before God. And by his suffering for the unrighteous, he made the unrighteous righteous. He justifies us in the presence of God. That's why he's called Jesus Savior, for he shall save his people from their sin. He presented himself in our behalf before the Father to appease his wrath by his full satisfaction, by offering himself on the tree of the cross and pouring out his precious blood to purge away our sins. He has suffered, sweating great drops of blood in the garden and crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? for the remission of our sins. That's what we mean when we talk about the satisfaction of Christ, our high priest, for us. Fundamentally, it is this, that he as the great high priest did not offer bloody sacrifices of animals, but offered his own precious blood for the real and complete remission of all our sins. Now the second part of the article talks about the response of a believing heart to this sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we may pick out from that second paragraph four things which characterize the response of a believing heart. The first thing is that we know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is a quotation from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, Paul is talking about his own ministry. And he says of that ministry among the Corinthians, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So Paul is saying, This was the goal of my ministry when I came to preach the gospel among you, to know nothing and to speak of nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But of course, what he's saying there is that he did that personally. He knew himself nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, so that that would be the result of his preaching among the Corinthians. That's what he wanted them to do, to know nothing except Jesus Christ 
and Him crucified. And that's the purpose of the ministry of the gospel today. That it should know nothing among the people of God except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So that you, as the people of God, may know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For the satisfaction of your sins. The second thing, and it follows immediately from the first, is that we count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And here the confession is quoting, of course, from Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But again, if you go to that passage, you will find that Paul is talking about himself. He's talking about all the uh, good things that he had prior to his conversion. You see a list of some of those things in verses 5 and 6. He says of himself, that he has reason to have confidence in the flesh more than any other because he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He had circumcision, he had citizenship in the nation of Israel, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews that is exalted among the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous in the law more than his uh, companions, as he has says in another place. He was blameless regarding the righteousness that is in the law. He had a great deal and would undoubtedly have achieved great heights in the Jewish nation if he had continued in that course. But he says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He counted even his sufferings as a greater treasure than all those gains he had as a Pharisee, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. But again, he's setting himself before us as an example, people of God. This is how we respond, is it not, to the great work of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf? I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. They're just rubbish to me. I want nothing except to know Him. I want nothing except to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. I want nothing but, be to, but to be conformed to His death so that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want nothing but that righteousness which is by faith 
in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And Paul says, goes on in that same chapter to say, I haven't yet attained all this. Verse 12, but I press on. I do not count myself to have apprehended, that is to have received all of this yet, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, this mind which was also in the Apostle Paul. So that's the second thing, to count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. The third thing, which the confession mentions, is that in his wounds we find all manner of consolation. There in the satisfying, atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we find all the comfort that we need for this life and everything that besets us here. And especially, of course, for the great terror of man under the wrath of God, that one day that wrath will destroy him utterly. He brings consolation. Our Heidelberg Catechism puts this very beautifully for us in the first question and answer. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil. And this is what the Apostle Paul addresses also in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 2. I recommend to you the reading of that whole chapter, but we're going to look just at a couple of verses, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 2 and following. I think I said 2 before I meant 1. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Comfort is what we receive from this atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth and final thing that the confession says is that because of this satisfying, atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we seek no other means of reconciliation. Now that is a uh, open, flagrant rejection of the teaching of the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome 
taught, the people of God still teaches to them today that they must do all kinds of other things in order to have reconciliation with God. They must do penance and receive the absolution of the priest. They must partake of the Mass where Christ is offered for them again. They must buy indulgences. They must do this and they must do that in order to be reconciled to God from their sins. And of course, this is a human impulse. It's an impulse even in our hearts to seek other means of reconciliation. I'm sure we've all had the experience of knowing we have sinned and then thinking, well, maybe if I'm good for a day or two, maybe if I do some extraordinary good work, God will be pleased with me. Or maybe if I punish myself by feeling guilty or by uh, afflicting my soul or by doing some kind of painful thing, God will be pleased with me. It's an impulse on our part to seek other means of reconciliation with God. But the believing heart, the heart that embraces the Savior, Jesus Christ, says there is one means of reconciliation and I will seek no other. I will seek Christ and Him crucified on my behalf. He has paid the debt of my sins. He will reconcile me to God. He will restore to me peace and righteousness and life. Because it is in His power and in His power alone to perfect those forever, those who are sanctified. And it is in His power and in His power alone to save to the uttermost those who come unto God by Him. May God bless us with His Word.